This is the GBA Case History Series brought to you by the GBA Podcast. One of the best ways to learn is by reflecting on the mistakes and successes of others. Each episode within this series will showcase one of the many case histories developed by GBA and its member firms. They're a collection of stories that cover many different disciplines within the geo professions, each with a unique message and lesson learned. We hope you enjoy this podcast and encourage you to share the lessons learned with others at your organization. Welcome to the GBA Case History Series brought to you by the GBA Podcast. My name is Tiffany Voorhees and I am Vice President at SME and part of the Emerging Leaders class with GBA. I'm going to introduce the case history and provide the backstory. Then I will bring in Carrie Folk, a geotechnical engineer from BSK Associates, to dig in a little further with some of the issues and lessons learned. Today we're discussing GBA's case history number 86, which revolves around a geotechnical investigation for a residential structure that was constructed on expansive shale and the subsequent construction materials and testing services that were performed during the earthwork phase of the project. I'm not sure how I keep getting these expansive soils for my episodes, but if you find it interesting, be sure to check out episode 108 that also deals with expansive clays for another case history. So in this episode, we'll cover the importance of having a clear understanding of the project scope, maintaining involvement in the project throughout the life of the project, and the benefit of communicating with those who are involved on the project. So before we dive into the story, I want to share some background and key technical concepts covered in this episode for those like me who work in other disciplines of the industry. First, it's shale. Shale is apparently, had to do some research and get some uh, some help from some other geotechs here, but shale is a fine greened sedimentary rock that formed from the compaction of clay and silt-sized particles. If the shale was formed from clay particles, the shale can be expansive. So if you want more on that, I really dug into that in 108 because this is not my wheelhouse, so it was very new to me. The second technical thing that I want to give some uh, intro on is the two foundation types that are discussed in this case history. First, there's a structural slab with pure foundations that consist of reinforced concrete slab setting on a pier. Pier is typically a vertical element that transfers the building load to the soil at a deeper depth. So generally, the soil at the deeper depth is more capable of supporting the building load, so you try to transfer it down there. Whereas a spread footing transfers the building load to the soil and doesn't extend more than a few feet into the ground. So later we're going to talk a little bit about the pier or the spread footings. So to get started on the backstory of today's case history. There was a couple who hired a builder to build their dream home on a lot in Colorado Springs, Colorado. The builder then hired an architect structural engineer, and a geotechnical engineer, which I'm just going to call geotech from here on out. The location of the residence was in an area that is known to have these expansive shales that are mixed in with sandstone. So the site for the residence consisted of a flat area on top of a ridge that had a downward slope ranging between about two feet horizontal and one foot vertical to three foot horizontal, one foot vertical. So pretty good slope. 
the downward slope was to be at the rear of the residence so that you can picture that. The geotech drilled two borings on site. About seven foot down at both borings, they ran into expansive clay soils with highly cemented sandstone. Now remember, this is not uncommon there, so they've dealt with this. The geotech could have recommended a structural slab system with pier foundations, but that pesky sandstone meant that their pier drilling would have been very costly and difficult. Instead, they recommended a practical solution that's commonly used in the area. It included removing four feet of expansive clay, then replacing it with four feet of compacted fill. This would then allow them to use the spread footings and have a soil base that's less susceptible to the movement. So the report that the geotech issued did give a warning that the expansive clay created the potential for movement of a slab on grade. And if movement was unacceptable, a pure and structural slab option should be used. The report also indicated that a slope stability analysis was not performed and they recommended that one be performed once more details of the project were known. So fast forward to construction. The builder went with the remove and replace option and hired the geotech firm to perform construction observations and compaction testing. So far, so good. When a representative of the geotech firm arrived to collect samples of the fill for their laboratory testing, they saw that some fill material had already been placed without any testing being performed or any observations of the process. They contacted the builder to stress the importance of testing all fill for compaction and obtained a sample of the exposed material. They took this sample to the lab and performed moisture density relationship and Atterberg limit testing, and the fill was classified as acceptable to use. So far, so good, and the next steps were to conduct on-site density testing. So remember, the recommendation was to remove four feet and replace it with acceptable and properly compacted fill. The geotech wasn't there to confirm the total depth, the placement, or the compaction. So back to the density tests. One of the on-site density tests indicated that the material was compacted to 91% relative compaction. The requirement given by the geotechnical engineer was 95% compaction. Now, when we bring Carrie in later, we'll discuss why it's so important to be at 95% and why this seemingly small deviation matters. But at this point, the geotech contacted the builder and recommended that the builder correct the low compaction and then have it retested. So what happened next? This is where the problems come in. About eight months after construction was complete, the home's foundation began to move. This created distress in the slab and some walls. A significant crack developed between where the house was bearing on fill materials and sandstone. Five months later, the builder had the geotechnical engineer perform an investigation of the movement. The engineer indicated that the distress was likely due to differential movement caused by heave and or settlement of the slab or foundation and was intensified by the differences in foundation support materials. Approximately six months later, the homeowners decided to retain legal counsel who knew the area really well. 
the homeowners filed a $2,750,000 claim against the builder, who ended up declaring bankruptcy, the architect, who had $250,000 in professional liability policy, the structural engineer, who was for some reason uninsured, and the geotechnical engineer, who was very well insured. Next, the homeowners retained two experts, a structural engineer and a professor of geotechnical engineering, who many in the area referred to as a hired gun and claimed that he was willing to say almost anything to support his client's claims. The structural engineer said that the builder caused most of the problems by deviating from the geotechnical engineer's recommendations. The quote-unquote hired gun put his blame on the geotech, arguably because they were the most capable of paying damages. He argued the geotechnical engineer should have followed standard of care and not standard of practice. His main argument was that the standard of practice of the local area wasn't sufficient and the standard of care for the state should have been followed. This argument allowed the homeowner's attorney to invoke a previous legal case which had ruled in favor of requiring that the statewide standards be followed versus local. Fast forwarding through the legal battle, this went on for a little while, we're not going to get real far into the legal battle, but the geotech firm ended up agreeing to settle. However, the requested $1.5 million was believed to be an attempt at betterment, so they offered a lesser amount. The lesser amount was rejected. In the end, they came to a middle ground and the exact dollar value isn't known, but they did end up settling. So what's interesting is when all was said and done and all this money exchanged hands, a salvage contractor purchased the home for $575,000. That money went to the homeowners. The builder's insurer and the member's firm insurer agreed to pay $300 each to the homeowners. In addition, the builder's insurer and the member firm's insurer agreed to pay $275,000 each to the homeowner's attorneys to cover the legal costs. In total, the homeowners received $1,175,000 and their attorneys and experts received $550,000, but the house was only worth $800,000. I am definitely not a geotech, so I have a whole lot of questions on this case. To answer those, in the next segment, I will bring in GBA member Carrie Folk to discuss this case and share her insights on the lessons learned and drop some geotech knowledge on us. Stay tuned. Now that you have background on the specific case history, I'd like to bring in a geotechnical engineer to discuss some of the technical aspects and break down a few of the lessons learned. My guest today is Carrie Folk, who, disclaimer, has absolutely nothing to do with this case and what happened. Carrie is a licensed geotechnical engineer, senior engineer for BSK Associates, and chair of the GBA Geotechnical Business Committee. Welcome, Carrie. Hi, Tiffany. Thanks for having me on this awesome podcast. So Carrie, for those of us who are not in the geotech field, or for those who are newer to understanding different designs, can you touch on the difference between the two main types of foundations discussed in this case? Sure. 
As discussed in your narrative, a peer and structural slab foundation transfers all of the foundation loads into drilled piers that are bearing on a firm and stable subgrade, which in this case is sandstone bedrock. And a floor slab is designed so that the loads transfer into the piers instead of into the soil below the slab. The other type of foundation was just simply shallow foundations bearing at grade. Okay, I think I'm picturing it. Uh, I always like to kind of visualize things. So would it be fair to say or describe it something like a structural deck is kind of similar to a parking deck? Basically, there's a concrete slab supported by some concrete columns. But in the in this particular case, the columns would all be under the ground so you can't see them. That is a perfect way to visualize it. The structural engineer has designed it pretending there's no soil underneath this until you get down to the bedrock. So that structural slab is pretending it's just air. Awesome. So in this particular case, what would be the benefits and drawbacks of a structural slab? So the benefits in this case would have been the structural floor slab could have been suspended above the subgrade and never come in contact with the expansive soil. The drawbacks would have been the difficulty of drilling piers into highly cemented sandstone. I think because since there was another commonly used method for this situation, that the member firm decided against the more robust but likely much more expensive structural slab and pier recommendation due mostly because of the construction issues with drilling in, in hard sandstone. Okay. Well, now that we understand the slab pretty well, one of the next things I wanted to touch on is the removal and replacement of soil in this case was also a big deal. So by the way, side note, that kept reminding me of like seeing all the clean fill wanted signs that I see in the Midwest. Is that a thing where you're at in California as well? Absolutely. Everybody's looking for clean fill here. We have a lot of very stringent regulations about contaminants, so clean fill is always wanted. And in this case, they must have had easy access to clean fill because oftentimes our contractors will do anything they can not to have to remove and replace fill on a site. Okay. All right. I'm, I'm glad to know it's not just me where I'm at seeing those weird clean fill wanted signs all the time. So back to the case. Can you talk about the soil removal and replacement in this case and why was it such a big deal? Yeah, so removing and replacing soil is exactly what it sounds like. You remove the soil that you don't want and you replace it with the soil that you do want. There can be several reasons to remove and replace soil, such as if, like in this case, highly expansive soil it could be organic, it could be undocumented fill with literally garbage in it, it could be soft, saturated, etc. If the soil is decent, sometimes instead of excavating it and removing it off-site, it can be reused as engineered fill provided they replace it properly moisture conditioned and compacted into place. In this case, the soil was highly expansive, so it was removed. Also, unlike the structural slab we discussed, the floor slab was supported on grade, which is called a slab on grade. This means that the slab, while having some strength of its own, must obtain a good portion of its support from the ground underneath it. So the fill in this case had to be very good fill since that's where the floor slab was gaining most of its support. Okay. I'm following. So we're working our way up from underground. Now we're at the slab. So that's where differential settlement came in. So to some of us, that term's probably clear, but maybe not to newer staff in the field. Can you touch on differential settlement and share your thoughts on how it tied into this case? 
Sure. So differential settlement is simply the difference in the amount of settlement or downward movement of the soil over a horizontal distance between one location and another location. So in this case, say one side of the living room didn't settle at all, and one side of the living room floor 20 feet away moved down by a half an inch you would have a differential settlement of a half an inch over 20 feet. This is also called angular distortion. So depending on how well the floor slab is designed to withstand angular distortion, this movement could cause a crack in the slab. The same thing could happen if you have differential upward movement, perhaps caused by swelling of expansive clays under a floor supported on grade. Nice. Okay, you know I can be a little cheesy sometimes, so pun intended. Can you expand on the causes of the differential settlement in this case? Well, I can expand all day because engineers love to talk about what they do. So in this case, like you said, I was not involved in this, so some of this I'm guessing at, but it sounds like there were several causes of the differential settlement in this case. As we remember, the case history mentions that a huge crack developed between the main portion of the home and the garage, and the garage was founded on sandstone. This is a big no-no on sites like this where you have bedrock near the surface in some areas and deeper overlying soils in some areas. It's a common rule of thumb to assume that even well-compacted fill can settle up to about 1% of the fill thickness. So in this case, with four feet of fill, that would be about half an inch. If the garage didn't settle at all and the rest of the house settled half an inch, this could cause some issues. To further exacerbate the problem, it sounds like there is a good chance that the fill was not compacted as recommended, which could have led to even more differential settlement. The standard of practice in the Bay Area where I work is if you have a site with rock at the surface on part of the site and soil on part of the site, you remove five feet of the bedrock to create a cushion by over-excavating the bedrock five feet below your foundation so that you don't create a hard point under one part of the foundation and sort of a soft point where the hard point won't settle at all and the area over soil will do some settling. Remember, it's differential movement that you're trying to avoid. The second thing that could have contributed is, remember, the member firm recommended that four feet of the expansive clays be removed and that four feet be replaced with what I'm assuming is non-expansive fill. It sounds like the member firm's representative was not able to confirm the depth of over-excavation since the non-expansive fill was already partially in place when they came to test the fill. It's possible that the thickness of the non-expansive fill was actually not four feet, which leaves the possibility that shrinking and swelling of the underlying expansive clays could have caused differential movement and subsequent distress in the walls and the floor slab. To make matters worse, all geotechnical engineers know this, but water is your enemy. And the case history mentions that the member firm believed that poor drainage may have contributed to the foundation damage. Poor drainage, i.e. water not being directed away from the home, could have contributed in two ways to the differential movement. One, if water was being allowed under the home and into the non-expansive fill, and the fill was not properly compacted and moisture conditioned, the water could have caused quote-unquote hydrocompaction, which is essentially water lubing up the soil particle surfaces and allowing the particles to settle into the void spaces around them, also to bring small particles into the large void spaces, both of which cause the overall soil mass to shrink or settle. The second way the water could have contributed to the foundation movement is if it got into the underlying expansive clays and made them more wet, the clays could have swelled and moved the foundation upward. Incidentally, expansive clays are the single most costly natural disaster in the United States. Nice. That was some great information. I think I might have to uh, listen to it a few times to process everything you said, but I'm glad people like you are working on these projects for us. 
All right. So switching it up a little bit, you work in California and have to follow a standard of care. This case was in Colorado and they also follow a standard of care. Basically, all engineers are held to a standard of care, but there were some interesting factors in this case based on the statewide standards versus local standards. Can you share your thoughts on this and maybe some takeaways for other geotechnical engineers to think about? So geotechnical engineering can depend very heavily on where it's being practiced. This is simply because it's completely dependent on subsurface conditions. In a state like Colorado, which has differing geology, think mountains versus plains, what might be the right approach to a problem in Colorado Springs, where this case was, might not be an adequate approach in Denver. Even with expansive clays, there are a range of approaches because the degree of expansion potential can vary with the chemical makeup of the clay and even be dependent on weather patterns. You can't say that a standard of practice in the same state applies across the entire state. It's very local. Got it. That makes sense. All right. For the last part of our conversation, I want to touch on some lessons learned from this case. For those who don't know, all of the GBA case histories wrap up with several lessons learned that member firms can use to help avoid making the same mistakes. I selected a couple of those lessons learned to talk about, and the first one should come as no surprise because we seem to hammer it a lot at GBA. That's the risk of doing anything with residential construction. So what are your thoughts on the residential aspect of this case, and did it tie in? Do you have any lessons learned that you'd like to share about that? Sure. So uh, you're right. It is common knowledge that residential construction is fairly risky. We have entire companies out here in the Bay Area that focus on residential construction because they understand the risks and they do a lot of things to mitigate the risk, whereas many companies just completely stay away from it because you have to know what you're doing. So this risk is especially true with single family residential development because often it's a small time developer who is involved and they're more prone to engage in high risk corner cutting activities and they view bankruptcy or being an LLC as an emergency exit. I believe LLC stands for limited liability corporation and they can just dissolve if something goes wrong. It's important to develop a scope of service that matches the risk and try not to be cheap. And that's the problem in this case. I think a lot of geotechnical engineers are thinking this is a small developer. I'm going to give them a small budget because they won't choose me if I don't. In this case, the member firm should have proposed a more comprehensive observation and compaction testing scope. So one of the next things for me was... In our business, there can be a lot of ways to address an issue and solve a problem. And it's our job to offer varying practical solutions, right? So for this case history, it sounds like the geotechnical engineer proposed two reasonable solutions based on past experience and respect for the client's budget. So let's say you're working on this project. In hindsight, how do you recommend emphasizing the importance of the foundation decision? Well, I think that the member firm probably explained the risks fairly well in their report, and they would not have provided the shallow foundation option if they didn't think it was a sound solution. They probably also had a lot of language in the report about how if the client chose the shallow foundation option, that careful construction practice along with plenty of observation and testing would have been extremely important. The problem is they didn't follow through during construction. 
Okay. Well, that leads to one of the next questions I had for you then. The amount of testing in this case was also a big factor. Can you talk about that? What went wrong with the testing and what should have happened? Yes. I think that what really went wrong was a lack of attention on the part of the member firm. Their recommendations that were intended to save the client money put the member firm at much greater risk, yet they didn't demand any special attention during construction and in fact treated the project in a fairly hands-off manner. If they had demanded that the contractor remove the fill that was already in place when they showed up that first day, or at least do a few potholes, which means dig down to whatever subgrade you're interested in in a few areas with like a backhoe, they could have confirmed the depth of the fill and they even could have tested the compaction of the subgrade below the fill. At that time, many of the problematic items might have come to light. If everything had been done exactly to their recommendations and they had the testing and observation to prove it, they would have had a much stronger defense against the claim and it's likely the issues would not have come up. That makes sense. I know um, in my world with welding inspection and things that we do, that's probably a good tie-in and reinforcement of the residential aspect because we don't follow up all the time because we know that our industrial clients really understand what's required and they call us when it gets to that point. So you made a great point there that you got to kind of stay on top of these smaller ones more and make sure they know when to get you out there and be involved. Okay, so one weird thing in this case to me, the slope stability report, it didn't seem to be that important, but yet during, you know, I I don't think it officially became a trial, but during everything with the legal proceedings, it turned into something big. But the firm had said that they didn't do a slope stability report. So why did that turn into such a big deal later? This was an interesting case. So it sounds like the slope stability wasn't the issue at the site, but I think the member firm should have included the fees and a scope for a slope stability analysis in their proposal and made it clear that the analysis should be conducted once the home location was finalized. I assume that's why they didn't do it in the beginning because they didn't know where the home would be with respect to the slope. But since they didn't, at a minimum, they should have followed up with their client once they learned that construction was moving forward to remind them that a slope stability analysis needed to be conducted. If the client at that point had refused, they should have written a letter stating that the stability of the site could be at risk if the slope was not analyzed very clearly. It sounds like the member firm concluded that the slope stability was not a contributing factor, but they had nothing to defend themselves with when the hired gun professor indicated that slope stability issues were part of the problem. Got it. That makes sense. Yeah, that hired gun was definitely a factor in causing a whole lot of trouble. That was pretty clear. Okay, we are to my last lesson learned, and it's another fact that GBA consistently emphasizes, and we've touched on it, but smaller project does not mean smaller risk. This seemed to be a relatively straightforward, smaller project, yet it turned into a huge issue leading to significant costs for the member firm. Have you found this to also be true in your practice? Absolutely. And I know I'm guilty of it myself. Oftentimes, engineers tend to have a more relaxed approach towards smaller, less challenging projects. We're thinking, oh, I've done this type of project a million times. This is easy. However, it's important to remember the high risk of small projects, which is often due to limited budgets, which leads to limited investigations and limited testing and inspection. Then when things go wrong, because it's usually smaller players involved, they're going to look to the best insured participant to lay the blame, which was the case in this case history. 
All right. Well, Carrie, that completes my questions for this case history. Um, and I really appreciate your time. You gave us some great insight into this and expanded on it really well. So do you have anything else you want to share with our listeners before we wrap up? Well, I think we covered it pretty well, Tiffany. The takeaway I would say is I hope this story reminds our listeners to think critically about every project, no matter what the size. Great. Thanks again. And for our listeners, this concludes our summary of Case History 86. As a reminder, all of these case histories are available free to GBA members and for a small fee to non-member firms. Please check out our show notes for links to this case history and additional educational information from GBA. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the GBA Case History Series. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the GBA podcast and leave us a review. Until next time, remember, the only real mistake is the one from which we learn nothing.